All right, you ready? Good evening. How's everybody doing? Good, good. Well, glad to see you. Um, well, I will tell you this, we got a lot of ground to cover tonight, and so I'm going to pray and we're going to dive right in because I've got, I'm going to try to get through uh, three different questions, but one of them I have four pages single space, so we're going to work through this as quickly as possible. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for this day. Thank you for each person here, and Lord, I pray that this time would be both enlightening and encouraging, and Lord, that we would go out of this place not only knowing more about you, but Lord, um, uh, Lord, that we would go out of this place just thinking more of you. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so first question, fun one. Um, regarding 1 Corinthians 11, 1 through 16, if you have your Bibles, you can open there because we're going to be there for a minute. Regarding 1 Corinthians 11, 1 through 16, should women be covering their heads or keeping their hair long? Um, actually, a much more common question than you would think, uh, because when you read it straightforward, it may seem like that to an extent, um, but, but we can walk through what's going on. So again, as I said, and even in, uh, we were talking about with these passages, uh, context is king when it comes to understanding the Word of God. And so we've got to understand what's going on in Corinthians, uh, in 1 Corinthians, and even in the chapter previous to this one, to really grasp what he's saying in chapter 11. So chapter 10 is a passage that uh, you're no doubt familiar with. But Paul is arguing with the Corinthians because of idolatry, or at least the things surrounding the practice of idolatry. You know uh, that the church in Corinth uh, is among, known among other things. Uh, the, the, the church in Corinth was known for their sin. Uh, specifically, uh, they were known for sexual sin and idolatry and even how the two connected with one another, um, even to the point, you, I'm sure you're familiar with this, there was a term uh, that, that was used even up until recent history, uh, but there is a term that was used when it referred to uh, when someone would influence someone else to, to sin, uh, they would convince them to become sinful, they would say that that person was Corinthianizing someone. That's how bad their sin was known to the point that there was a word in the English language to describe what it meant to make someone act sinfully. And so, they're dealing with this. And, and the reason that's important is these people who were coming to faith in Christ in Corinth and had formed the church in Corinth, they had come out of that culture, yes, as, as they had been saved. But remember, they still technically lived in that culture. Just like today, we, we live in a culture. Even though we are believers in Christ, we still live in a culture that we can be influenced by, rightly or wrongly. Um, and so they were living in a culture, and it was very rampant in their culture. Um, the sin was everywhere. Uh, it was constant. I don't have to go into too much detail to let you know um, that sexual sin was rampant. Uh, when they worshipped the false gods, uh, they used both male and female prostitutes to do so. And they would do that on the temple steps right out in the front, uh, right out in the open in the middle of the day. So you can imagine walking your child to school and you would have to walk them past that. So the truth is, is this is so common in their culture and it's around them. And you can imagine if these people were raised in this their entire life and then they were saved out of it. But they still have to walk through it every single day. It's hard. It's very difficult to come out of that, uh, those things. And it's also very easy to be drawn back. That's why Paul actually uses the term uh, when he's talking to the Corinthians. And he says, lest you be drawn back into uh, your old ways. And so when you think about that and when you read about that in Corinthians, you'll realize they're struggling. 
they're struggling a lot with, with holiness and living rightly. So Paul begins to talk to them in chapter 10 and even says in chapter 10 verse 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the, same, uh, in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And now these things took place as an, as an example for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction. On whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will always provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are of one body, for we all partake of one bread. Consider the people Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they are offered to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Now, I could go on, but from that point on, he really begins to describe meat sacrificed to idols. Okay, so uh, they were having an issue because the Christians there uh, uh, believed uh, that it was it was no big deal for them to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols um, because uh, it was meat and they could eat it. But then there were Jewish brothers and sisters who were around who had a significant issue with this happening, um, and even to the point uh, there was it would violate certain laws. Uh, or certain things that were laid out by uh, the Jerusalem Council. Uh, and so, all that to say, that's the background behind what's happening. When Paul says, in verse 23 of chapter 10, all things are lawful, but all, not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Your translation might have something that we tend to look over. We think Paul is saying all things are lawful. Paul is not saying all things are lawful. If you look at it, your translation may have it. It says, all things are lawful. It actually has quotations around it. Then it says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Why is he saying that? Because it's actually a common phrase in Corinth. It was written all over everything that everything was permissible. 
Anything you want to do, you can fulfill any pleasure you desire because all things are lawful. Paul is making a statement about what was going on in Corinth. And he's saying, look, you're hearing all the time that all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. And you're hearing all the time that all things are lawful, but not all things build up. Okay, so Paul is saying that. So, okay, where are we going with this? Well, he talks about meat sacrifice to idols. Then in verse 31, he says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. So Paul is saying, I do my best to not offend because it was offensive to the Jewish brothers and sisters uh, that they would eat meat sacrificed to idols. And what he's telling them is, look, technically you could do it. I'm not telling you that you can't. But if you're going to offend someone by doing it and you can get by without doing it, then don't do it. There's no sense in offending someone. Okay? Why? So that they might be saved. That's what he says at the bottom. I do the same thing. Okay? So you get all the way through chapter 10 and you say, well, I thought we were talking about chapter 11. We are. That was introduction. So chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's not Paul boasting. He's simply saying what he said before. I try to please everyone everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. That doesn't mean Paul just gets along with everybody. He's just saying, I do everything I can to see other people come to Christ. And then the very next phrase is, be imitators of me. He's not saying I'm awesome. He's saying, do just like I do. Do what you can to win people to Jesus. All right, so that's the whole point. That's the background behind these next few verses. Verse 2 of chapter 11. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Okay, so we got to stop right there. Paul doesn't begin the section with now concerning in, in Greek. If he began the, uh, the section with now concerning, it would mean that he's shifting gears like he's talking about something else. But he doesn't. He just says, now I commend you. Right? He's actually still talking in the same vein of what he was just saying. That's why it's important to read chapter 10 first. Um, and so whenever we look at chapter 10, he's talking about meat sacrifice to idols. He's talking about doing things um, that before the culture don't make you look like the culture. Okay? That's what he's talking about there. Because he's saying, look, if y'all are free to do whatever you want and you want to do whatever you want, then there will, no be, there will be no difference between you and the culture, and the culture won't see that. They'll think, well, man, why would I be, want to become a Christian? Those people who say they're Christian do the same things we do. That's his whole point in chapters 9 and 10, is to talk about the distinction between those who are of God and those who are not. So, in chapter, two, or in chapter 11, I'm sorry, in verse 2, he says, I commend you because you remember me in everything and you maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Now, he commends them for remembering him and what he had taught them. But then in verse 3, and again, verse 2 is important, but we're going to get back to it after we walk through all this. Verse 3, he says, I commend you. That's a great way to start. I commend you. Verse 3, but I want you to understand something. So now what do we realize? I commend you, but there's something wrong. There's something wrong. So he's about to address something that they're not doing right. If you're the Corinthians, by the way, at this point, if you've read through 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, by this point in 1 Corinthians, um, you're just, it's, it's like Paul just keeps, he lures you in by saying, I commend you to this, and then he punches you in the throat. That's what happens every time. Oh, man, y'all are doing so great. Pow, you're wrong here. 
I mean, it's just over and over again, and that's what happens here. I commend you, but, right? It's like when someone says, this, this dinner is amazing, but you know it's coming, right? Something's wrong with the dinner. And it's the same thing here. He says, but I want you to understand. Now, this gets really weird. It would seem like, and this is where the struggle is, it would seem like this statement is coming out of the clear blue. Where is he coming? Where is he going with this? Remember, where I'm, hopefully at the end, I'm going to bring it all back together. So just walk with me. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Okay? It's an interesting phrase. And if you don't use the ESV, it, it may have read a little bit different. It would have said something to the effect of, uh, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a woman is her husband. Or it can say the head of a woman is the man. Um, and then the head of Christ is God. The reason that the ESV translates it wife and husband is because that's the context. It's, that's what it means here. Uh, it's a word that Paul uses uh, interchangeably uh, in this passage um, when he says this. This passage, even mine, at the beginning of chapter 11, right above verse 2, mine, you know, if yours gives the little, uh, the little titles, lets you know what that section's kind of about. My title says head coverings. Yours probably says something similar to that, right? Except this passage isn't about head coverings. It's also not about hairstyles, although that's mentioned in this. This is about headship. This passage is about headship, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. So he begins his argument, which this is an argument. He begins his argument by laying out or, or setting the stage, if you will, uh, to present what he's saying. The first thing he says is this. The head of every man, and in Greek it says that, the head of every man is Christ. That means spiritual head, leader. Okay, That's, that's what it means. We hear that, we go, well, yeah. Of course. The one we don't like is the next one. Now, some people might like it, but if you're sitting near your wife, you don't want to say you like it. That's a joke. Don't get uncomfortable. It's fine. It's the Bible. God gave it to us. It's right. The head of every man is Christ. And then, as I said, the ESV says the head of a wife uh, is her husband or the head of a woman um, is uh, the man or the husband. But it's referring to a dependent relationship. So this could also be applied to um, uh, daughters and fathers. It, it, it's, a, it's a dependent relationship. That's why it says man and, or a woman and man. So the head of the wife is her husband. Notice, even in whatever translation you have, notice something. It says, the head of a wife is her husband. The head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. Why is that important? Because if it said the head of the woman is man, that means that every single woman is to be in submission to every single man in the same way. And the Bible actually doesn't teach that, just so you know. Um, it says that a wife is to be, it, the head of the wife is the husband. Then he says, and the head of Christ is God. Now, this is why I, I love this passage in talking about biblical headship. Biblical headship is a very important doctrine to understand, not just in life, but even in the church. It's very important. The reason it's important is because 
um, when we hear it, there is, and I'll go ahead and say it even though I have it. No, I'm not going to get there yet. I have my notes. Um, but I will say this. It's important because we hear this. We say, okay, I have no problem with the fact that he says that the head of every man is Christ. But I struggle with the idea that the head of a wife is her husband. But the next phrase should make, none of, it, should make it instantly realize that none of us should struggle with this concept. Because the next sentence, or the next phrase in the sentence is, and the head of Christ is God. This is so important to understand. The reason biblical headship is not misogyny, it's not, it's not oppressive, it's not wrong, is because he says the head of Christ is God. Even within the Trinity, there is headship. And it's not wrong. We believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and maker of earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten. Right? The creeds throughout history tell us what? That God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are different. They're, they're distinct persons, and yet also one, God, right? They, they are that. They are co-equal and co-eternal, which means they all are eternal, but they are also co-equal, which means God, is, God the Father is not more perfect than God the Son. And God the Son is not more powerful than God the Holy Spirit. They are co-equal. They are equally powerful, equally uh, in, in every way, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, all of those things. So they're completely equal in all ways. And yet, even within the Godhead, the Son willingly submits to the Father and the Spirit willingly submits to the Son. There is headship within the, within the Godhead. And, and, and we get in our minds, we say, well, I, oh, I don't know if I like that. But it's, it's actually true. It's, it's biblical. You can walk through it and realize it. Because someone being the head over someone else does not mean that the person who is the head is somehow more valuable, better, or in any way above that person. It means that one of the people or one of the persons in that relationship willingly chooses to submit even though they're equal. Okay? So the reason I bring that out is because just because the husband is the head of the wife, it does not mean that the wife is not completely equal in every way. Before God and in, in, in every way, in essence. The, the wife is completely equal. The idea of headship is not this person is over this person because this person is better. It's this person is over this person because that's just the way God made things. It's the way it's supposed to function. Okay? And so he goes on. Is when we hear this, we're like, ah, I don't know. Well, there is headship in the Godhead. So because of that, it means that no one lacks intrinsic worth. It does not mean one is better than the other. Because if it did, this would result in a heretical understanding of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Because you'd have to say, well, then that means God the Father is technically better than Jesus. No, he's not. Read Colossians 1. Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead. Right? It, it, that's what he is. So you can't, you can't argue that at all. And the reason I, I really believe, the reason Paul mentioned that, is so we would understand headship within this. Because that's what this passage is about. Right? So in verse 4, he continues. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covers... Covered, excuse me, with his head covered, dishonors 
his head. And that sounds really strange. So we realize that Paul is referring to two different things. Every man who prays or prophesies, and we don't have time to talk about what prays or prophesies means in this passage. There's an explanation. It's a simple one, but just suffice it to say, these are actions that take place in the public or in the assembly of the church. That's, that's what it is. So he says, any man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. There's two different references there. Any man who prays or prophesies in public with his head physically covered dishonors his spiritual head. So that, that is, it's not his physical head in both ways. He, he's saying if he prays with his head covered, he dishonors his spiritual head. Man, uh, man in Adam was given the mandate to rule creation, and in so doing, he reflects the glory of God, and in covering his head physically, he dishonors his head spiritually. Okay, Because the man was made in the image of God. Now, the female was made in the image of God too. That's clear from Scripture. But Paul is arguing something specific here. Every man who prophesies or prays with his head covered dishonors his head. Verse 5. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. He's doing it again. Any woman... or I'm excusing. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head physically uncovered dishonors her spiritual head and because of this it would be the same as if her head were shaven okay what we've got to remember he's making comments none of these things are made in a vacuum none of these comments are made in a vacuum they're made specifically in the instance of what the corinthians are dealing with so when he's saying this he's speaking directly to them so when he says this is the case, the church um, in Corinth had a bit of an issue. They had a singular issue, really. They dwelt in a culture that believed anything pleasurable was permissible. In fact, the Corinthian culture, as I said, had the slogan, everything is permissible or all things are lawful. And this is what the Corinthian believers were coming out of. And it seems the women in the Corinthian church had decided to throw off their head coverings. Otherwise, why would he even be saying this? It, there's an issue. There, this is happening. That's why he's bringing it up. Now, when they talk about their head coverings, a lot of times we think, oh, yeah, well, you know, maybe some of them were Jewish and wearing the yarmulke or whatever. No, th- th- that's not the case. Actually, it was common in the Greco-Roman world even uh, for, both, uh, uh, for both men and women to cover their heads um, in, in certain er- instances. But the women, when they would cover their heads, they would cover their heads with like a shawl, look like a prayer shawl. Um, the truth is, one commentator said, if you want to know what it looked like in the nearest way that we could connect it, if you know what it looks like when a, when a, a Muslim woman wears a, a, a burqa or, or a hijab, when she wears that, that's what that looked like. They would cover their head and many times would even veil their faces um, whenever they would go into a worship setting of some kind. But what happens is, apparently, the women are throwing off their head coverings. Now remember, what's the context? All things are permissible. He's saying, no, they're not. They're not helpful. They're not right. Okay, so he says in verse 5, But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. So Paul says, um, you know, if she's going to remove her shawl, remove her head covering, then she might as well just shave her head. 
Because in that day and age, which it will reference this again in a minute, but in this context, what's going on is that when women had short hair or they had their heads shaven, it was a sign of something. Specifically in their culture, it was a sign of something. Um, when a Jewish woman, and really even in the Greco-Roman world, but when a Jewish woman was caught in the act of adultery, they would cut her hair short. So that when she walked throughout the village, everyone knew she was an adulteress. She was that kind of woman, is, is essentially what they were doing. So Paul says, well, man, I mean, this is Roger's paraphrase. He's like, well, you know what? I mean, if she's going to remove the shawl, she might as well shave her head. Because everybody's going to think she's that kind of woman anyway. Okay, that's, that's what he's arguing. Say, well, it sounds like Paul's sarcastic. Paul's sarcastic all the time. That's why I understand him so well. So he says in verse 6, For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Okay? I'll say this in a minute, but again... What Paul is arguing is he's talking to the Corinthians. If you walk, you know who had short hair or shaved heads in Corinthian culture in Corinth? Temple prostitutes. And what he's saying is if they're going to do that, it's going to be shameful and disgraceful. If they're not going to wear their head coverings, they might as well do it. They might as well just shave their heads. And if she's going to cut her hair short, she might as well just shave her head. She might as well have it short. Why? Because he's saying it's shameful. It's disgraceful. What is he talking about again? Remember, we always have to back up. What's the context? The context is Paul saying, stop looking like the culture around you. You need to look different. Okay. So then he says, verse 7, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. That sounds good, right, guys? Again, y'all are uncomfortable. Nobody's laughing. It, it sounds good. You hear that and you're like, wow, okay, so man is the image and glory of God. Then the next phrase, even more bothersome. But woman is the glory of man. Wow. Woman is the glory of man. What is he saying? This is actually a simple argument. It's not intrinsic. Again, why? Because they're equal. It's about headship, right? They're equal, just like the father and the son are equal. He's not arguing that they're not. He already made that point. See, we lose track of it sometimes, but they, they would have understood exactly what he's saying. He, he already said they were equal, so this has nothing to do with them not being equal and intrinsic in value, intrinsically valuable. What he's saying is, the man is the glory of God. Why? Because man was made directly by God from the dust of the earth. The woman is the glory of man. Why? Because the woman was made from the man. Okay? And it, he'll get back to this argument in a minute. The woman is made from the man. He's arguing origin. Okay? That's what, when he says glory, it doesn't mean like magnificence and awesomeness. Like my wife is somehow the radiation of my glory. That's not what he means. It, uh, Oh, no, she's the radiation of far, far better than my glory. But what, it's, what he's saying, he's arguing origin. He's saying, well, the man comes from God in the sense that he was directly created. Now, the woman was also directly created uh, by God, but she also has something that Adam doesn't. Adam was made from the dusty earth. The woman was made from Adam. 
okay? So this is what he's arguing. Um, so, because in verse 8, so well, where are you getting the creation aspect? Verse 8, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. That's what he's saying. He's arguing that there's a little bit of a, hear me, it is not, again, is it a distinction of value? No, it's not a distinction of value. They're equally valuable before God. Is it a distinction of importance or ability? No, but it is a distinction. This is important. Our culture will tell us that in order for us to be equal, there can also be no distinctions. That's just not true. It's, it's not true. Okay? I, I can be completely equal with someone else in, in, in everything that is intrinsically important. But there are also distinctions between me and that person. That person can run fast. I cannot. Right? That, that could be a distinction. Well, we're equal, but there are differences. Just because we're different doesn't mean we're not intrinsically equal. What Paul is arguing here is he said, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. He, again, is not saying that woman is somehow inferior because of that. He's simply saying it's different. They're still equal. Why? Because notice this. Man was not made from woman, but woman from man. But they were both made. So they're still equal. They're both made. It's just a different type of making. That's all he's arguing. So then in verse 9, Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That sounds like... Sounds like misogyny if I've ever heard it. Sounds like, almost like indentured slavery. Or it sounds like the book of Genesis. God looked, Adam was naming the animals of the earth. And after Adam went through all the animals of the earth, it was, they did not find a mate suitable for him. And God looked, and behold, he said, uh, throughout all of, uh, all of uh, Genesis, he made this, and it was good, evening and morning, the first day. And he made this, and it was good, evening and morning, the second day. And he made this, and it was good, and it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. It goes all the way through. And then it says, and he made Adam out of the dust of the earth, and he, he did all this, and it was very good. And then the next sentence almost, he says, and then God looked and said, it is not good that man be alone. It's actually really important. It is good, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is very good, it is not good. Now God's not saying he messed up. What God is saying, gentlemen, if you ever want to feel like you're superior in some way, what God was saying was, you standing there by yourself is not good enough. That's what he's saying. You, it's not good enough. There, there's something missing in you that you need. So what does he say? There wasn't one. So he says, for man was not made, uh, I'm sorry, uh, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Well, of course. Why would I say of course? Simple. Because Adam was created first. That's the only argument that Paul ever gives for headship, is that Adam was created first. And because it says that God looked and behold among the animals of the earth, he could not find a helper suitable for Adam. So he, cre he caused the deep sleep to fall on Adam. He took a piece of his side or his rib um, and he formed woman from that and then gave her to Adam. And Adam looked and said, it's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. For what reason? Because she came out of man. All Paul is arguing is creation here. He's not arguing intrinsic value. He's arguing origin. It's where they came from. He's saying, well, you know, when we look at that, we say, well, so he's saying... That women were created to serve men? No. 
What he's saying is men needed all the help they could get and God created woman because that's the best thing he could do for them. Right? That's, that's not a statement about how awesome men are. That's a statement about how, uh, how much we're missing and how much they fulfill. Okay? So when he says this, um, he says in verse, I'm sorry, in verse 9, Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now that is a weird, I'm telling you, sometimes Paul, you're just trying to follow him, and then he throws something in about angels. I don't even know where that comes from. Except we do know where that comes from. See, the relationship of God with men is something, according to 1 Peter 1.12, it says it is something in which the angels longingly look and try to understand. They, they look at it like, I don't get this connection between, I don't get the gospel, the, the, the saving grace of God, and, and how you can know all that and then rebel against it. Like the, the angels, it says it's something they long to understand, they look into and a woman's submission to the authority of uh, the authority over her is an example what Paul is saying is it is an example to the angels so a, a a wife who is willingly and lovingly submitting to her husband according to Ephesians the husband is loving his wife as Christ loved the church that picture right there and that willing and loving submission that the wife offers to her husband who's leading her says that the angels look at that. They're blown away by this. Wow. Why? Because she's equal in every way, and yet she willingly submits. That's tremendous. That's an amazing truth. So he says, that's why. So for this reason, a wife ought to have a symbol of authority. It's a really important phrase. A symbol of authority. What symbol of authority? The head covering. It's a symbol of authority. It's not authority. It's just a symbol of it. Okay? So a symbol of authority. Verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. Equality again, right? It's intrinsic equality. Neither one is independent of the other one. So it's the interdependent relationship of men and women. It's clear. Then in verse 12. He says, for as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. So what's the argument? Yeah, Eve came out of Adam, but Cain and Abel came out of Eve. That's what he's saying. You can't get away from the fact that if a man says, well, you know, you know, well, well, you know, I just, I can do this on my own. There's one thing you can't do. You can't give birth, regardless of what our culture says. I don't care. You can't give birth. Okay? And so that's what he's arguing here. Lest you think that somehow at any point, either one rises in worth above the other. He says, no, no, no. You can't do this without each other. This is, in, this is intrinsic value that's equal. But then headship is loving headship and willing submission. That's what he's describing here. And then he says, in case we're wondering, in verse 12, and all things are from God. Lest any of us think we're actually doing something. He says, no, this is all God. Verse 13, judge for yourself. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? So he's at, he already asked them that in the previous chapter. Remember, he said, judge for yourself if this is right. What he's saying is, guys, look at this logically. 
He's saying, look at it logically. In verse 13, judge for yourself. Then in verse 14, he gives the reason. He says, judge for yourself. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? That's an interesting phrase. But in the context of this passage, a woman who is wearing her hair longer is marking herself as a woman. And a woman who desires to have her hair short or to shave her head is automatically telling the world, I desire to be either seen as a man who would have short hair in their culture or I desire to look like or be seen as a temple prostitute or an adulteress. Right? So it's this very important to understand what's going on here and what Paul's saying. So the Apostle Paul is saying here that in the Corinthian culture, when a wife's hair was longer than her husband's, it showed her submission to his headship. The roles of the male and female are designed by God to portray a profound spiritual lesson. And that is, again, of submission to the will and order of God. That's why Paul started out with the head of every man is Christ and the head of every wife is her husband. Right? That's why he started out with that. And then he mentions the angels because he's saying, guys, if we can understand that we are equal in worth and value, but that there is a created order in which God has made things, this is something angels long to understand. This is something that is glorious and amazing. And then in verse 16 he says something important. And it's interesting. This is not separate from this discussion. It's not separate from this discussion. But I will say, if you jump down and look at verse 17, he says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Right? So he shifts gears significantly here. So we know whatever he's saying in verse 16 is kind of like his culminating point in this whole passage. And what's the culminating point? If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So what's the issue here? What is he referring to? Head coverings? No. Hairstyles? No. His issue is rebellion and contentiousness. And he says, and the churches don't do that. What's his point? Stop trying to look like the world. Stop trying to act like the world. Quit trying to identify with the world. Men and women. This isn't just a passage about women. Stop trying to do that. Um, in today's culture, to get to the crux of it, in today's culture, we no longer view head coverings as anything other than a fashion accessory. Right? It's just cultural. It's just a fashion accessory. But in the Corinthian culture, it was seen as a sign of willingness to submit to God, the God-designed authority that had been placed in that situation. Also, uh, the fact that this was an issue within the Corinthian culture specifically can be reinforced by the phrase in verse 2, which is what I said we'd return to. Hear it again now. Now I commend you. Because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. He's saying, hey, I commend you to do this. Uh, but I want you to understand something. Why? He was commending them that they were doing some of them, but they apparently were violating at least one. There was a tendency for them to throw off their head coverings. Throwing off their head coverings, was that like, um, I mean, in the truest sense, what was it? Not in a good way. This was like, 
like a, a, they, were, they were having a women's lib movement in a bad way within the Corinthian church. Not where the women were saying, hey, we're equal, that's fine. What they were saying was, we're not under anybody's authority. I'm not under my husband's authority. I'm, I'm not under his headship. I'm not under anybody. I'm my own person. And the men are, of course, responding with, uh-uh, girl, you're under my authority. What is this creating? Well, he said it in verse 16, didn't he? If anyone is inclined to be what? Contentious. This is creating contention within the body. Paul is concerned with the heart of what's going on. He's saying again, what? The head coverings and all that issue? It's just an outward expression of where your heart is. That's what he's telling them. And in this specific culture, the act of wearing a head covering or not evidence the uh, condition of their heart. Um, The reason issues such as this make us nervous is because in recent years, the evangelical church is seriously troubled and confused by feminism. Men and women, just confused by it. To the point now that there's something referred to as evangelical feminism. While affirming the equality of the sexes, biblical evangelicals have resisted claims of undifferentiated roles in ministry and in the church. That in order for us to be equal, we must also be able to do all the same stuff. Large churches and even the Christian media have largely succumbed to the strident voices around and saying, well, if we're going to oppose this, we're just being unfair. But what we can't get away from is there is a design and order to things that is not man-made. That's Paul's whole point. It's not man-made. God made it. Where? So, well, Paul came up with, Paul didn't come up with this. Where is he arguing? Adam and Eve. This is a part of the created order. This is how God made things. And, you know, when somebody makes something, they get to be the ones to say how it's supposed to be used and how it's supposed to work right. Like God, beyond anyone else, understands how creation works best. And it works best when God's people function within his created order. And that's why it's so important to understand this. So the question at the beginning was, should women be covering their heads or keeping their hair long? According to 1 Corinthians 11, 1 through 16. Yes, if you are a first century Corinthian dweller. Because Paul's issue is what they're doing here. What would it look like here? What would Paul say in in our context? Well, Paul would say, hey, that um, kind of radical evangelical feminism and some of the the contrary stuff that comes with it, which is some kind of mild evangelical misogyny that comes alongside that. You better get rid of that mess because you look too much like the world. That's what this means. So the question is, should you wear a head covering? Only if you want to, and if it matches your dress. (laughs) Or your pants. I don't care. (laughs) The point is, is that God is concerned with the heart, and that's what Paul's dealing with. That's why at the end of the passage he says, Don't be contentious. That's about a heart issue. It's about arguing with one another. Um, And it has, so that's why I said, it's not about head coverings, it's about headship. And it's basically this, God created the order in which we are to exist. And it works best when we follow his order and not our own. So let's make sure we don't let the world work into the church and tell the church how to live. Because the truth is, the church is the only one that truly knows how to live because we're the only ones that have the instructions. Moving on. That's the first question. Let's see if we can get to the other three in 16 minutes. 
our pets in heaven. Let me just start by saying I completely understand where this question comes from and I totally get the feeling behind it. Okay? I have two dogs now and they are my buddies. They hang out with me all the time. Because often, I mean, I'm not at home. I'm away from the house and they're home. Luann, of course, we homeschool and so they're in the house all the time. But sometimes when they go to things or do stuff, I might be at the house by myself. It doesn't matter. They're on me. They're sitting on me, right? I have, a, I have a Boston Terrier bulldog. His name is Owen Knox Rogers. That's Owen for John Owen, Knox for John Knox. John Owen, the Puritan. John Knox, the uh, Scottish reformer. And then I have a French bulldog whose name is, and I am not kidding, you can look on his papers. I have a French bulldog whose name is Aurelius Augustinius, the Bishop of Hippo. <laughs> because St. Augustine... You may call him Augustine, but it's Augustine. St. Augustine was the bishop of Hippo in northern Africa. And so he's named after St. Augustine. Love him to death. Great. I love him. Right? Now, I will say, too, um, in, in the entire time Luann's known me, we, we've had dogs. We've had plenty of dogs. There's probably one dog, though, that's, like, been my dog. I had a 11-month-old, 110-pound, Blue Merle Great Dane named Charlotte Moon Rogers. So her name was Lottie Moon, in case you were wondering. Lottie. I love Lottie. She was huge. I walk in the door, chop up on her back legs, wrap her paws around me, ask Luann, lay her head on my shoulder and just sit there until I hugged her back. And then she'd jump down and run off, right? And I would pick myself up off the floor because she was gigantic. But she got sick. Um, we knew something was wrong, took her into the vet. She had something wrong in her bowel. Vet took out a bunch, um, and everything was fine. He said, you can come pick her up in three days. Went, I went and checked on her. She was great. She was moving around. Then that morning, before we were supposed to pick her up, he called me. He said, don't come up here yet. She's running fever. I need to check some stuff. She checked her. He opened her up. She had developed gangrene in her whole body. He had to put her down on the table. I was uh, brokenhearted, to say the least. I, mean, I love that dog. Um... And with that said, we need to understand the nature of humanity and animals. God created humans in his image. All other things were created subserviently to human beings. Okay, so we were created and then we were told to fill the earth and do what? Subdue it. Everything else is in subservience to humanity. Also, while human beings and animals, animals have breath, animals were never made in the image of God with both the ability to reason at a high level, but also to understand spiritual things and to know God. Whereas uh, human beings, of course, were. Humans were created to have a relationship with God and animals are never described uh, to have this kind of relationship. Psalm 32, verse 9. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle. In other words, when the psalmist wanted to illustrate uh, the loss of a distinctive thinking capacity and ability to connect with God when describing a human being, he used animals to describe that. 
Genesis 9, 2 through 3, um, whenever the flood was over, God spoke to Noah and he said, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon all that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. End quote. So what did God tell Noah when he walked out of the ark? Animals exist for food. That's what he told him. I mean, sure, they have other worths and they can do other things. They can protect. They can, you can, uh, if it's a horse, you can ride it. I mean, there's all kinds of other things. But in the end, he says, I have given you everything for food. Humanity is made in the image of God and animals were made to serve human beings in our needs, whether it be work or sustenance or whatever else. Now, while we might argue that dogs or cats or horses or parakeets or whatever it is that that you keep as a pet, if you keep a snake as a pet, God help you. But the truth is we hear that and we say, well, that's different. They're, They're different. How are they different than chickens or pigs or cows, of which quite a few of us enjoy on a daily basis right well how are they different well they just are well they're actually not the reason i say they're not is because um while we might argue that they're different like dogs are different than chickens well they are different animals but we say they're different intrinsically they are till you go to china one of the most i'm telling you i'll never forget going down a particular road in the Hunan province and having my American sensitivities rocked for about a half mile because there were puppies being sold by the pound and they were hanging from the, it was like I mean it was like a horror movie to me they were just buying food for their family it's a normal thing for them why? because that's not an intrinsic value thing and it's not right just because we're American it's an American sensitivity that's what it is I'm not saying I'm going to butcher my dog and eat it. I'm just saying that it's an American sensitivity. Because you would look at them and say, is it wrong? Is it, is it morally wrong that they eat dogs? No. It's not morally wrong. It's weird to us. We don't like it. We think that's crazy. Because we picture our pets when we think of it. Right? But it's also really difficult for a Hindu to think about you eating a hamburger. Or me smoking a brisket. Because they don't eat cows. All that to say, there will obviously be animals in heaven or at least in the new millennium, in, in the millennial kingdom. The reason I say that is uh, both the book of Revelation, I mean, right, we've got four, what, horsemen of the apocalypse. They're all coming on horses. There's horses there. Um, but also uh, in Isaiah 11, 6 through 9, and Isaiah 65, verse 25, we're told things like the lion will lay down with the lamb. And the, there are at least ten animals listed in those passages. So there are, there are animals in existence in that time. However, even in those instances, these do not presuppose that these were pets at one time who have somehow made it to the afterlife. Um, simply put, all we have to do is stop and think. Stop and ask ourselves. And I, I started with my pets because I love them to death. I understand where you're coming from. We have to stop and ask ourselves, if we want to apply this generally, 
then I, if I, I want my pet to be in heaven, I also desperately need to make sure that I want that possum I ran over on the highway to be in heaven. Because the distinction is not pets and not pets. It's either animals or not animals. It's, it's, you can't have it. But why? Because in different parts of the world, different animals are, well. But, you know, the Lord, the Lord knows what we love. Yes, he does. Oftentimes our love is misplaced. The scripture also says he knows we are but dust, which means we're weak and frail. The idea of a pet dying and then being resurrected is impossible to maintain as, again, that is a privilege exclusively held for humanity in Christ. Otherwise, it's not special. Why, why would it be special that a human being could trust Christ and though they die, yet they will live? That we have this hope. That even though we die in Christ, the dead in Christ will rise first and we who are alive and remain. Why is that significant if also it involves every other animal on earth? It's not. And so the simple truth is, is while the question, I swear to you, I have answered, not here, obviously. But I have answered a hundred times over the course of the years. In the end, I cannot find biblical warrant to say that that be the case. With that said, I'd love to see, I'd love to hang out with my dogs, but I will tell you this too, just as a side note, when you get to heaven, if your happiness in heaven is predicated on your pet being there, you have way too high of a view of your pet and way too low of a view of the glory of Christ. Because when you're in heaven, frankly, I'm just going to be glad I'm there. I just want to see Jesus. I just want to bask in his presence. And then, as I quote often, like the hymn says, the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And so, anyway, will animals be in heaven? Will pets be in heaven? Our pets be in heaven? My answer would be, I find no biblical warrant to say yes. So, the third one, this will be the last one I can cover in just a second. Was the fourth man in the fiery furnace Jesus? Good question. Um, really what the question is, is uh, asking is about what we would refer to in the Old Testament as Christophanies. Christophanies or Theophanies, but Christophanies are um, a physical manifestation of Christ in the Old Testament. Okay? Um, so we talk about this. Well, the foundation for understanding... And, and again, if you, the fiery furnace, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, thrown in the fiery furnace uh, by Nebuchadnezzar. He's in there, and yet even the men who threw them in the fiery furnace die because when they get close, the heat's so bad, they die. And yet uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are standing in the fiery furnace, and they're just looking around like it's no big deal. It says the, the, uh, the ropes that were tied around their hands burned off, and yet when they came out of the furnace, they didn't even smell like fire. Right, that, that whole deal. But you remember there was a part in the, in the story where it says they were in there. And then as they peered into the fire, they said, I see. How, basically, they're like, uh, king, how many people we throw in there? Because I see three, but I see a fourth who is like one of the sons of the gods. Right? So I thought it said son of God. But technically, it says one of the sons of the gods because Elohim is 
a common term in the Old Testament, yes, is used to refer to God, but is a plural term for El, which is God. Elohim is plural, gods. So he's like one of the sons of the gods. So in that instance, when it comes to being in the fiery furnace, the question was, uh, the question, the way that I read it was, um, could it have been Jesus? Yes, it could have been. It also could have been an angel. And the reason I say that is because sometimes angels in the Old Testament are referred to as sons of the gods. Um, but in John 1.18, to really understand this really quickly, John 1.18 tells us that no one has seen God at any time. Why? Well, because Jesus himself said, God is spirit, and those who worship him worship him in the spirit and in truth. He's referring to the Father. Why has no man seen God at any time? Two reasons. One, you can't see him. He's spirit. Two, if you did look on him, you would die. But the scripture says in John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son of God who sits at the right hand of the Father, he has explained him. Or uh, he has exegeted him, literally. It's the word for exegesis. So he, is, he has explained him. Um, so he's talking about Jesus. So what does he say? What is John saying in John 1.18? It's right after he said, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his what? His glory as of the only begotten from the Father. So who is Jesus? He's saying, um, Jesus is. If you want to say you've seen God, the only way you've seen God is if you've seen Jesus. Because you can't see the Holy Spirit. He's spirit. It's in his name. You can't see the Father because Jesus said he's spirit. So the only one you can see bodily is Jesus Christ. Right? Jesus himself said in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. Wait, now what do we find out? That Jesus himself is eternal. He's an eternal being. So where was he in the Jesus did not come into existence in a manger in Bethlehem. Jesus is the eternal son of God. He's always been. Therefore, when we think about this, there are some interesting things that happen in the Old Testament. For instance, in Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, Joshua is there and it says, And behold, Joshua looked and there was a man, uh, there was the, a man who was before him and he saw him and he said, Are you for us or are you for them? And he responded with essentially, a Roger's paraphrase, I'm not for either of you. I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. And I've come to ensure that you will win this battle. And it says that Joshua is overwhelmed and he fell upon his face. And the angel said, take off your shoes because you're standing on holy ground. So he took off his shoes and he was bowed down before him. And the commander of the army of the Lord, who was a physical person that Joshua saw and spoke to, received his worship. Just hold on to that. Judges chapter 13. Manoah and his wife, which is the parents of Samson. Prayed for a child. They go before. She, she meets this guy um, who says um, he's an angel. Uh, or She says he's an angel uh, from the Lord. And so Manoah, of course, Manoah didn't see him. So he says, pray again that he'll show up. And then he shows up again to his wife. So his wife runs and gets Manoah and brings him back. And they meet him and said, are you the one that told my wife she was going to have a, a baby in her barrenness? And he said, yes, I am. And they offer worship. They offer sacrifice to him. And he receives the sacrifice. And then it says afterwards, and Manoah realized that this one was the angel of the Lord. Not an, the. The definite article. This is one of them. 
Well, there are lots of angels. But there's one of this one, the angel of the Lord. He receives worship. Jacob wrestled with an angel in Genesis 32, 22 through 32. And at the end of him, you know the story at the end of it, but there's a phrase at the end. Jacob rejoices. And at the end of it, he says, I rejoice for I have seen the face of God and I live. But he wrestled with a physical being. You know what the passage says? The passage says, Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord. The messenger from the Lord. That's what the word angel means. But then we find something interesting. All the way at the end of the book. Revelation 19 verse 10 and Revelation chapter 22 verses 8 and 9. In both instances when John sees this amazing vision. <coughs> excuse me. He sees this amazing vision. John says, I fell upon my face before him to worship and thank him for what he had done. And in both instances, the angel basically, paraphrase again, the angel says, get up, don't do that. He says, don't offer me worship. I am a created being. Instead, worship God. Angels do not receive worship. Only God receives worship. So if angels don't receive worship and only God receives worship, then that means the angel of the Lord was a bodily manifestation of God that people could see and experience. Therefore, when you see that in the, New, in the Old Testament, that's why when I say things like in John 8, 58, when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, Jesus wasn't just saying he was eternal. I really believe there's at least a part of that where Jesus is saying, hey, you remember that story about Moses at the burning bush? That was me. Because when that happens, when Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord throughout the night, he wrestled with Jesus, a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus Christ. When Joshua fell down on his face in worship before the angel of the Lord, the, the commander of the army of the Lord, he was worshiping Jesus. And when Manoah and his wife were praising God and offering sacrifice to the angel of the Lord, it was perfectly fine because they were sacrificing and offering worship to Jesus because he is the eternal son of God. So could it be that it was just an angel in the fiery furnace? Sure. Could it also be that it was the angel of the Lord, Jesus himself, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Of course it was. I said, well, man, what do you know? Well, you know, this past week I referenced, or it was two weeks ago, I referenced the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus was standing there and he revealed himself in all of his glory to Peter, James, and John. Do you remember it says that he's standing there and he kind of revealed his glory and they looked and, and Jesus was doing what? He was having a conversation. I love that. He was having a conversation with Moses and Elijah like he knew them because he did because he is the angel of the Lord the eternal son of God and I just think it makes the Old Testament it's just so beautiful to understand that God in the person and work of Christ determined that's what Paul means when he says that Jesus because of your sin and my sin Jesus came to this earth and he did not consider equality with God in Philippians 2. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Why? Because he already had it. He didn't need to grasp it. He already had it. 
But instead, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he humbled himself. And he took on the form of a man. He took on the, the actual nature of a servant. He lived among us. And then he died on the cross in obedience to God the Father. And by doing so, and being raised from the dead, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess on the earth, under the earth. And every tongue will say that he is Je Jesus Christ is what? He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so, I don't know. I can just keep on going forever, but it's 735, so we'll just stop right there. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for this day. Thank you for these questions. Lord, I thank you for uh, the opportunity to answer them. And Lord, I pray that we would always continue to seek to know you more. Uh, but like I said at the beginning, Lord, I pray that we would go from this place not only knowing more about you, but just wanting to know you more. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much.